Hey, Ben, what do deadheads say when the drugs wear off? What? Whoa, what's this terrible music? <laughs> uh, hey, guys, did I tell you what band we're talking about today? Hey, I got a good one. How many deadheads does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? Around 50,000. One to change it, 100 to tape it, and the rest to fall around until it burns out. <laughs> hey, you, you, you might like this album I have here Did you guys hear the Grateful Dead put out an 80-disc box set of live music? It got held up, though, because they couldn't decide which song it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, why do people wave their arms around at Grateful Dead concerts? Hey, this music is really good, what is it? It's the band you jerks have been making fun of this whole time who are the morons that don't know good music when you hear it? This, this is Discord and Rhyme. rhyme. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> Deadheads, and welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can find us at Discord Pod on both Twitter and Instagram, and our website, discordpod.com, features show notes, our blog, and our full episode archive. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. I'm Ben Marlin, and I'm here with Mike DeFabio, Phil Maddox, and Dan Watkins. First, let's start with a round of applause for our newest Patreon donor, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, yeah, Jason. Jason, if other listeners want to sign up for a monthly donation, you can visit patreon.com forward slash discord pod. We've just started posting bonus episodes as a perk with more to come. Our host this week is Phil. Phil, what winner of the 1999 Academy Award for Best Picture are you taking us through today? Why, I'm taking you through Kevin Spacey's wonderful album, American Beauty. Wait, no, not <laughs> Kevin Spacey. The Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead's American Beauty. That's what I'm talking about. And Phil, can you tell us why you chose this album? So the Grateful Dead are one of my favorite bands. I have all their studio albums, a billion archival live releases. I've listened to bootleg live releases. So clearly I love the band, but they're in this weird position culturally of being both overrated and underrated. They're overrated in that the band quite famously have an army of followers who insist that they're the greatest band on the planet, who would follow them around from show to show and essentially not listen to any other music. But they're also underrated in the sense that because of disdain for that first group of fans, there are tons of people who will just dismiss them as hippie burnout nonsense <laughs> and not pay any attention to them at all, which, I mean, is a kind of understandable position. But me personally, I've long loved The Grateful Dead. I grew up listening to American Beauty and In the Dark because my dad had copies of them and played them all the time. And I loved those albums so much, I eventually expanded beyond those, got all their studio albums, delved into their huge catalog of live recordings, 
And I want to defend this band from people who write them off because of their perception of the fan base. Plus, as a person who has never done drugs in their life, which is a true statement, I want to put to rest the idea that you have to be on drugs to love the music of the Grateful Dead, because in my life, I have smoked zero weeds, <laughs> and I love the Grateful Dead more than almost anybody. So, Phil, can you tell us your personal history with the band? Sure. So growing up, my dad had two Grateful Dead albums, American Beauty and In the Dark, which is the album that contains their big hit from the 80s, Touch of Grey. He played them all the time, and I loved those albums. I loved them when I was a kid. When I started becoming too cool to listen to the music my dad listened to, I still loved those albums. I listened to those albums so much. And then I, got, I went to college, I read some reviews, and I heard that there were a series of archival live releases called Dick's Picks, named after Dick Latvala, their music archivist. So I went to the local record shop at my college and picked up Dick's Picks Volume 4 and listened to it obsessively and just completely fell in love. And I eventually ended up getting all their studio albums, all their contemporary live recordings. Then I started digging into getting multiple Dick's Picks, all kinds of different live recordings. I got fairly obsessed with this band. And to this day, I still listen to them all the time. And I often just really resent how in popular culture, they're portrayed as a band that only stoners would like. Because again, I've never smoked weed or anything in my life, but they're seriously one of my 10 or so favorite bands. And I think that their music deserves serious consideration from people who might have written them off because of their reputation. So, Mike, what's your history with the Grateful Dead? Well, I, too, have have never smoked a single weed in my life. But uh, <laughs> I've had a positive attitude toward the Grateful Dead for longer than I can remember, really, because uh, when I was a little baby Mikeling and it was time for me <laughs> to go to sleep, my dad would put on side two of their live album, Europe 72, which begins with the song Jack Straw. And it always did the job. Oh, that's such a good song. It is. We can share the women, we can share the wine. We can share what we gotta use, cause we can share all of I personally don't remember any of that, but that's nevertheless always been kind of a comfy song for me, even though it's it's actually kind of a bloody tale of revenge in the old west. But babies don't know that. But anyway, I, when I, I got a little older and I decided to really get into the dead in earnest, I had gotten really into psychedelic rock. And the album that really spoke to me was their 1969 live album, Live Dead, because it had Dark Star on it. And if you're into lengthy psychedelic mind blowers, uh, you can't really top the version of Dark Star on Live Dead. It's a strong candidate for my favorite recording by anybody. That version of Dark Star is so great. It's amazing. And listening to that, listening to that whole album, really, 
it was hard to really understand why they were so uncool in the popular culture. I mean, I think it's it's coming around again. I think bands like The National have been really vocal about their love of the Grateful Dead. So I, th- I think more people are are coming out of the woodwork. But um, at the time, they were just they were kind of a, a joke among a lot of music fans. And I was hearing these sort of uh, bits of of bands like Television and Sonic Youth in the music on Live Dead in particular, and bands that were considered you know they were acceptable to like. So I couldn't quite figure out what's you know what. What was there to laugh at? But anyway, uh, Live Dead was really the album I was pushing for when we talked about doing a Grateful Dead episode. But with all all those epic jams on it, I can kind of see how it wouldn't fit our format too well. So I, American Beauty is, you know, it's not their most, it's not a psychedelic mind blower of an album. But it's, I think it's a really good choice for, for this episode because it's a nice way to ease you in. I am with you on Live Dead. In terms of non-archival, contemporarily released Grateful Dead albums, Live Dead is actually my favorite. But it's seven songs and a double album and 20-minute jams, and I do not know how to talk about that in the format of this podcast. Yeah. American Beauty is definitely their album that is the most conducive to the format of this podcast and also contains a bunch of great songs. But just know going in, Live Dead is probably my favorite. We just couldn't cram it into the format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how are you how are you going to talk about Dark Star without like going like moment by moment? Well, I'm going to be talking about Pink Floyd's Echoes in a couple weeks, so <laughs> we'll we'll see how that works out. So, Dan, what is your history with the Grateful Dead? Well, the Grateful Dead is actually one of the first bands I remember really getting into as a kid. My sister owned the uh, Skeletons in the Closet compilation, which I think is not very well loved among hardcore Dead fans. But everybody has it. Yeah. <laughs> but I really took a liking to it. And it sent me digging through my parents' dead records, which included American Beauty. And I kind of found myself fascinated by the whole Grateful Dead lore. And I signed up for the Deadhead fan club. And their newsletters... Deadheads unite! (laughs) That their newsletters were like among the first mail I ever got that was addressed to me uh, Mm. as like an (laughs) eight-year-old. And I was doing very few drugs at this time. Um, (laughs) But somewhere along the way, I just sort of moved on to other bands and didn't look back. And admittedly, it's probably influenced by kind of a cultural perception of the Grateful Dead not being cool if you're into cool music. But a few years ago, I kind of had a random urge to revisit them. And I just started picking up some of the recommended live sets for beginners, just kind of here and there. And, you know, I doubt I'll ever find myself just listening to hours of Dead shows but I've uh, definitely reaffirmed myself as a official casual fan of the Grateful Dead. That rarest of creatures. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a dabbler. <laughs> a real unicorn. So I went to college, and while I can't confidently say that I was trained for adult life in a way that was proportional to the amount my parents paid for it, I was definitely exposed to the Grateful Dead. Um, every university's unofficial second mascot is those little marching Care Bears. Like everyone else, I owned the greatest hits that Dan talked about, the uh, skeletons from the closet, and I liked it a lot. The Dead have some solid songs, and I have to say, you know, after you all have talked about all the live releases, that is an area I just have not explored at all, and the way you talk about it makes me very intrigued, so I want to check out Live Dead. 
yeah, for better or for worse, I just never explored further than the greatest hits or what I've heard on the radio. I don't even know why, because the Grateful Dead, you know, they represent an era and style of music that I love more than any other. I have Sirius XM radio in my car, and when I'm channel surfing, I instinctively fly past channels 22, 23, and 24. That's Pearl Jam, The Grateful Dead, and Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Almost like it's a satellite radio version of the movie The Ring, and if I listen to any of those channels for more than a few seconds, something terrible will happen Even to Margaritaville? Me. But... <laughs> Especially hey, actually, Margaritaville. I actually like Jimmy Buffett. Not a lot an insane amount but i like jimmy buffett i like the greatest hits and i trust you that there's other stuff in there and fruitcakes was a fun song yeah oh, hit me sucks. up if you want uh recommendations <laughs> but i i want to say about those channels it's less of a comment on the grateful dead than their unfortunate position between pearl jam and jimmy buffett it's like being served a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on poison bread it's like <laughs> i enjoy peanut butter and jelly just fine but i'm still gonna find something else to eat uh, <laughs> But like I said, it's very likely that if I dug into their live sets that you've been describing, I'd groove along and enjoy them a lot. So maybe I will I will try to spend more time on that station. I remember when Jerry Garcia died in, was it 1995? 1995. Yeah, what a huge deal it was and how sad so many people were. And I think it hit me then that this was a band that made a lot of people happy. And, you know, whatever I think of the music and we'll see as the episode goes on, I can definitely get behind that. So, Phil, can you give us a history of the Grateful Dead? Indeed I can. Driving that train, how cocaine, Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. Trouble ahead, trouble behind, and know that notion just crossed my mind. So the Grateful Dead were formed in Palo Alto, California in 1965 by Jerry Garcia on guitars and vocals, Bob Weir also on guitar and vocals, Phil Lesh on bass and occasional vocals, Bill Krutzman on drums, and if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, I can't find a canonical pronunciation of that, I'm sure I'll be corrected, and Ron Pigpen McKernan on keyboards and vocals, uh, Mickey Hart on second drums, and Robert Hunter on lyrics, joined the band in 1967, completing the band's classic era lineup. This lineup remained remarkably consistent over the years. Mickey Hart left the band in 1971 due to a combination of drug addiction and fallout from his father, who had briefly been the band's manager, embezzling money from the band. Wow. And he didn't rejoin the band until their final performance before a 1974 hiatus after which he was in the band for everything after that. And the keyboard role was always something of a revolving door after Ron McKernan's death in 1973. But the core of the band remained the same until Garcia's death in 1995. So the Grateful Dead were staples of the Bay Area hippie scene, playing at things like Ken Kesey's famous acid tests while they were still under their original name, the Warlocks. The band built up a reputation as a great live act in the area, and they were eventually signed to Warner Brothers Records in late 1966 to early 1967. So the band recorded and released their debut album, simply called The Grateful Dead, in 1967. The album really doesn't sound like what people these days associate with The Grateful Dead. 
There's no long, trippy improvs, though the album does conclude with a 10-minute blues jam. No country stuff. The album mostly consists of hard-driving psychedelic pop that occasionally has an almost nuggetsy garage rock edge to it. This is the first track from the Skeletons, right? Yep. What's it called? The Golden Road to Unlimited Devotion. It's a great song. So, yeah, their whole debut kind of sounds like that. So, despite sounding very little like what would come after, a few songs from this album, most notably a cover of Bonnie Dobson's Morning Dew that would become one of the band's all-time best live songs. So after that album came out, it was a modest success. Mickey Hart joined the band, and then the band recorded their sophomore album, the extremely confused-sounding Anthem of the Sun. This album had a considerably more psychedelic edge to it, consisting of fewer, longer songs that had a tendency to spin out in a bunch of directions. This album was created by taking live takes and splicing them together with studio tape to try to create something of a hybrid. The goal was to kind of try to recreate their live sound in a studio setting. The material was reasonably solid, but the album was kind of a mess. And paled in comparison to contemporary live recordings from the band. Some people say this is a really good album, but I would say that if you're interested in this era of the band, some of the original tapes used to create this album from their live shows surfaced on Dick's Picks Volume 22, and just buy that instead. It's a much better listen than this. So then after that album kind of came and went, the band released their third LP, Oxo Maxoa, A-O-X-O-M-O-X-O-A, which most people would know as the album with the skeleton head ejaculating into the sun on the front cover. Whoa. <laughs> I never knew that was what it was. I didn't yeah. either, yeah. It was a real one step forward, two steps back situation. They, they really improved their songwriting after Anthem of the Sun. They started writing a lot of songs that worked more as songs and less as psychedelic jams, such as on, you know, the spectacular opening cut, St. Stephen. St. Stephen with a rose In and out of the garden he goes Country garden in the wind and the rain Wherever he goes the people all complain Stephen Osborne in his time Well he may and he may decline Did it matter does it now Stephen would answer if he only knew how Unfortunately, though, the band seemingly had no idea what to do in the studio at this point. So this was one of the earliest 16 track albums, and the band decided to just drown the album in overdubs and all kinds of stuff. They added a sound collage, What's Become of the Baby, which is just terrible. And I'm a person who likes Revolution Number no. 9. 
So when I say that this experimental sound collage sucks, it's not because I don't like experimental sound collages. <laughs> it's because it's a very bad experimental sound collage. So this album, there's some good songs on it, but the best songs from it all exist in much better live recordings when the band kind of figured out what they were supposed to sound like. Such as uh, China Cat Sunflower is probably the best song on this record, but the studio version is terrible and the band would eventually figure out what it should sound like because it's a complete train wreck on this album. Yeah, just to jump in there, it's a terrific song live, but the studio version of it, it sounds like those little dancing bears are chasing me through my house, like those tiny old people at the end of Mulholland Drive. (laughs) Deeply terrible. (laughs) I would have never guessed how great a song that was based on that studio version. It's another studio album you can safely skip. But during this time, the band continued to be a killer live act despite their problems in the studio. The problem is they were trying to capture their live sound in the studio or add things to it, and it just didn't work. The band never figured out how to do this. So in 1969, they released the completely wonderful Live Dead that Mike mentioned earlier, which was largely released just to make up for debt they accrued, spending so much money on Axomaxoa, which, wow, it's crazy to think they spent a lot of money on that album that nobody really likes. (laughs) (laughs) Again, as I mentioned earlier, I very nearly chose this to be the dead album I cover here because it's probably my single favorite release from the band. It's absolutely stunning from start to finish. Lengthy jams that ebb and flow and never get boring. But after Live Dead came and went, for their next album, 1970's Working Man's Dead, the band changed their style in the studio considerably. They got rid of all the crazy experimentation that didn't work. They got rid of all of the half-hearted attempts to try to recreate their sound in the studio. So the band composed a very strong set of country folk and blues-based numbers, that really couldn't sound more different than their previous studio work. While their earlier stuff sounded just like a mess where they were trying to figure out what they even were, Working Man's Dead sounds like an absolutely wonderful album where a band has figured out what they were. You would never guess that they had made such nonsensical, psychedelic nonsense albums before this. But two things in particular influenced the sound of this album. One was Jerry Garcia's purchase of a pedal steel guitar, which he plays all over this album. And the other was both their friendship and emerging success of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who inspired Garcia to make the band work on their harmonies, because previously there was no good vocal harmonies on previous Grateful Dead albums. The result is a grittier, less polished sounding version of the kind of music that Crosby, Stills, and Nash were known for, which that's not an insult. That means it feels a little bit grittier and more authentic. This is probably best displayed in the song Uncle John's Band, which became a pretty big hit at the time. Goddamn will I declare, have you seen the light? There was a built of cannonballs Their motto is don't check on me Come here, Uncle John's band Playing 
to the tide. Come with me or go alone. He's come to take his children home. I would have never guessed that the band had a song like that in them from any of their previous recordings. The leap in terms of songwriting here is just astronomical, how much better they got. Which is not to say that their earlier albums are necessarily less good. Like I've said, Live Dead is a really great album, but it's a completely different beast. It's psychedelic jams, whereas Working Man's Dead was just great songs incredibly great songs that still sound timeless to this day. But at any rate, Working Man's Dead was easily the best studio album the band had cut to date, and the band knew it. They knew that was where they needed to go. So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel or go in any kind of different direction, they instead decided to try to advance on this sound, which resulted in American Beauty, which we're here to talk about today. Okay, we'll get to the Cider House rules in just a minute, but first we're going to take a quick break. Happy New Year and welcome to 2020. I recommend going on Spotify and looking up the excellent power pop band 2020, especially the songs Yellow Pills and Remember the Lightning. And while you're remembering the lightning, you should also remember to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get recommended to the numerous lost souls who are wandering the earth without an awesome album podcast. And if you'd like to support us with a direct monthly Funbucks donation, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. $2 a month backers already have access to our next compilation, Never Mind the Mainstream, the best of MTV's 120 Minutes, which features a whole bunch of bands I love, as well as the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And we've already started recording and releasing bonus minisodes for our $3 a month backers with more to come. And now it's time to truck like the doodah man, whatever that means. We're back. It's time to follow Phil around the country in a brightly decorated van as he goes track by track through American Beauty. And we'll start with track one, Box of Rain. what birds do in the sky or is that just what songwriters use it's not just here but i mean i've, I've never heard anyone use that like in conversation look at those birds winging up there <laughs> <laughs> file it with i don't mean maybe so the grateful dead are most well known for being the band jerry garcia was in with people occasionally bringing up bob weir as their second guitar player 
How funny, then, that the opening track on what is probably their most acclaimed album was written and sung by bassist Phil Lesh, a man who wrote very few songs for the dead over the course of their career. Phil Lesh was the closest to a classically trained musician in the dead, playing violin and trumpet before studying and composing avant-garde music with Luciano Biero. Sorry, I, I, I think it's Berio. Berio? Yeah. I will take your word for it. <laughs> While he didn't write nearly as many songs for the dead as Weir and Garcia, his non-traditional approach led to his bass often being nearly another lead instrument, which contributed immensely to the bound sound. So this is, in my opinion, one of the absolute strongest songs the Grateful Dead ever recorded. The lyrics from Robert Hunter are absolutely wonderful, the titular Box of Rain referring to the planet Earth. And the song has a stunning melody with vocal harmonies popping up in all the right places, not saturating the song, just popping up every now and then when they can accentuate something. There's also a wonderful, understated guitar solo in the middle of it, and the whole thing leads to a coda that contains a completely different melody from the rest of the song that is both beautiful and somehow fits in perfectly with the rest of the song. If it's just a box of rain, I don't know who put it there. Be it if you need it, or leave it if you dare. If it's just a box of rain, I'm somebody who, when it comes to the Grateful Dead, my opinion is generally, you know, live is always better. But uh, the interesting thing about American Beauty is that it it starts with two songs that they never improved on live. No. Uh, and this is one of them. They, they absolutely perfected it in the studio. And it really makes you wonder why uh, Phil Lesh didn't write more because he was clearly yeah. very, very good at it. Uh, you can hear a lot of the, the Crosby, Stills and Nash influence on this one, but... It doesn't sound like they're trying to sound like Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It's more like they're taking that approach to harmony and sort of grateful deadifying it. And uh, Bob Weir mentioned something about this song uh, and how, how Phil Lesh writes. He'll do this thing, and you can hear it kind of near the end of this song, where he'll have like a repeating melody, but every time the melody comes around, the chords will be different. And it's a really interesting way of writing a song, but it also made it really hard to learn because you think, oh, it's going to be this chord. Nope, it's different. That's that's something you don't hear a whole lot. That's where you can really hear Phil Lesh's kind of more traditional music training. He yeah. really wanted to throw people for a loop. And he does. But in this very uh, you don't even really realize you're being thrown for a loop. It's it's such a it's such an accessible song. Otherwise, he just throws these little tricks in there. And this song is pretty long. It's more than five minutes long, which is pretty long for, you know, a country influenced song in 1970. But it never feels long because the song is so well written that every bit feels essential. Right. Yeah, this song is just absolutely gorgeous. Like it just shimmers and it kind of does a neat production trick where, and maybe it's just me imagining on if it's intentional or not, where like with the guitar strums and the percussion, it just sounds like 
like smashing puddles of rain to me. Hmm. Like I always heard it that way. I got kind of an elementary question though. So with Robert Hunter writing the lyrics and was Phil S just writing the music? That's all. Or did he pretty collaborate much. at all with the lyrics? At this point, uh, Hunter was writing pretty much all of the band's lyrics. So the band was generally writing melodies and songs. They were working with Robert Hunter to figure out what the words were. Yeah, and what I've read was that Phil Lesh, he he composed the melody and just sort of would scat sing it. And Robert Hunter put words to that. He would do the scrambled eggs. and uh... <laughs> Sort of, yeah. Okay. Nobody in The Grateful Dead was a particularly good lyricist, which is why on this album, Robert Hunter wrote everything. And on later albums, uh, Robert Hunter would work with Jerry Garcia, but John Perry Barlow eventually joined the band and worked with Bob Weir. So both of the primary songwriters in the band had their own dedicated lyricist. Hmm. To have their own voice, I guess. Yep. Which is for the best, because if you listen to, you know, Anthem of the Sun, you hear, you know, Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir trying to write their own lyrics, and they're not terrible, but hiring an outside guy was clearly the correct move. The heat came around and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day is a pretty good line, though. That's a great line. <laughs> yeah, it's a great title for the song. I mean, I didn't even realize it was about the planet Earth, but and I, I don't know poetry, uh, but I love that imagery, just a box of rain, whatever that is. How does rain get in a box? Wouldn't it just be water at that point? But no, it's awesome. It's just a box of rain. We don't know who put it there. Ah, I like the song's uh, pleasant country rock vibe and, and the gentle rhythm. The chorus is nice and it's just this side of catchy. But to me, there's a sense that this is a band without a ton to say, at least in the studio. They love what they do and I really applaud them for that. But I don't I don't get this that there's a deep well of radio hits just waiting to bust out of them or, or anybody who's really excited about creating that kind of song. It's possible that they really did just want to sit around and slowly strum their guitars and sing something, uh, but they had to come up with something to sing in a few minutes because otherwise there wouldn't be anything to sing. In that context, it's fine. Uh, I like it, but, but I do wish it was more distinct. Phil, I want to ask you about those harmonies, and this is unless you were going to talk about it later. What makes up that singular blend of voices that they deploy on this album? So they be they were friends with Crosby, Stills and Nash and really liked their work. And the band talked to Crosby, Stills and Nash and said, teach us how to harmonize. So the band learned how to harmonize explicitly from Crosby, Stills and Nash, which mm -hmm. in return, Jerry Garcia played on several Crosby, Stills and Nash albums. Like if you hear like the slide guitar part, the pedal steel part rather on Teach Your Children. That's Jerry Garcia. Really? Which is great. I never knew yep. that. Huh. So the band basically traded ideas. Jerry Garcia said, I'll play pedal steel if you teach us how to harmonize. I like that. Um, so, so Garcia is singing. Who else is generally singing when they're harmonizing? It's generally a combination of Garcia, Lesh, and Weir. Okay. Who takes the really high note? Do you know that? I don't know. I think it's it's usually I think it's usually Phil Lesh singing the the high harmony. Phil Lesh is probably the least traditionally good singer in the band, which as their career went on, he got a little bit more yelly. 
Garcia is clearly the best singer in this band. Yeah, I would agree with that. But the band live never managed to recreate their gorgeous studio harmonies. It was clearly the work of taking a lot of time and piecing it all together because all the songs they did that required vocal harmonies that they performed live were just never that great. And there are, there are plenty of singers in rock and roll who are great at backup vocals or kind of blending in with other singers. I'm thinking of John Entwistle in The Who, but who you normally don't want to hear up front and you wouldn't traditionally call them good singers. So there, there's room for that for sure. But this is why, even though the Grateful Dead are most well-known as a live group, the songs from this album are not really highly represented in their live performance. Or if they are represented, they're vastly rearranged because this album was so singularly of its time with them working in the studio that it just became very hard for them to do it in the they it became very hard for them to do it live. So at the end of some of these songs, I'm going to talk a little bit about live recordings of these songs because it's the Grateful Dead. So we have to talk a little bit about how these songs were performed live, how frequently they were performed live. Box of Rain was a pretty regular standard for their set after this. They played this a lot. Probably the most notable recording of this because they never, their song doesn't jam at all. It's just... It's just a song, and it was always pretty much fine. The most historically interesting thing about this song is that it was the very last song the Grateful Dead ever performed. Oh. So the very final song of their very final show in 1995, showing up as an encore, where the final lyrics to the song really do sound prophetic in retrospect. Such a long, long time to be gone and a short time to be there. Box of rain. I don't know who put it there. Believe it if you need it. I'll leave it if you dare. Just a box of rain or a ribbon for your hair. Such a long, long time to be gone and a short time to be. So we're going to move on to the second track of the album, Friend of the Devil. The Devil. Devil. I lit up from Reno, I was trailed by 20 hands. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around Sit out one but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight Ran into the devil, baby, no need 20 bills Spent the night in Utah in a cave up in the hills Sit out and run, but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight 
So this is a wonderful bluegrass-inspired shuffle by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter that is widely considered to be one of the Dead's all-time best songs, and I can't say I disagree with that. This is a great song. But since the first song was written by Phil Lesh, and this is by Jerry Garcia, this is a great time to talk a little bit about Jerry Garcia and what he brought to the band. He was definitely the most folk and country-influenced member of the Dead. He spent a lot of time playing banjo, and he even formed a jug band with later Dead members Bob Weir and Rod McKernan. While he eventually started performing more and more psychedelic music, he never truly left his love of country and bluegrass music behind, and it was really nothing but a good thing for the band on the occasions when he would let that love out, such as this. One noteworthy thing about this song is that it got a co-writing credit from John Dawson from New Writers of the Purple Stage, who basically came up with the title and chorus of this song, where Robert Hunter's original lyrics were, It looks like water, but it tastes like wine, which Robert Hunter even admitted at the time was not a very good lyric. And then John Dawson suggested, A friend of the devil is a friend of mine instead, which Robert Hunter instantly agreed was much better, and he changed the words accordingly. But this is just a great, great song. I love the shuffle of it, the great lyrics. Oh, the lyrics on this one are so good. It's a very strong indicator that Robert Hunter joining the band really improved them immensely. There's just so much cool stuff going on in the background, just... A wonderful country folk shuffle that I have a hard time explaining how much I like this song, but it's very, very good. On acoustic guitars, is that going to be Weir and Garcia playing against each other there or playing off of each other? Generally, yeah. Okay. They're so good there. This is just a ridiculously great one-two punch to start this album with. Like, yeah, this is probably my favorite Grateful Dead song. Like, it's just Mm. such a great, concise, perfect song. And the thing I kind of honed in on listening to it this time around for the podcast was the mandolin playing, oh, which so is good. really, yeah, it kind of like edges on overplaying, but it's just the right amount to kind of accentuate the the song. But yeah, like I kind of don't really know how to articulate what it is about the song that kind of, because it kind of has an old timey Robert Johnson kind of storytelling thing to it, but uh Having those hellhounds on your trail. Yeah. It feels so much older than it is. It doesn't feel like a 1970s hippie band thing. It feels old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a fantastic story song. It's straightforward. It, it's no BS. It, it conjures up the image of an outlaw, but it never dips into the cheesiness that I think other bands might indulge in if they were going for a Wild West feel. Um, the lyrics are fun and evocative, uh, although the bit where the narrator denies paternity of a baby because it doesn't look like him, I'm skeptical. And that's a really awful reason to skip town. Uh, <laughs> if I had to put down money on this, it's totally his. He just don't want to pay for it. The arrangement is simple and effective. Just those two acoustic guitars and, and Lesh on bass and, and Grisman on mandolin. There's no glop in it. There's no sweetening. Whatever perspective it took to be so direct and understated, or more likely, whatever they were smoking that day, I wish I could pass it out to every musician. They don't have to indulge in it all the time, but they should keep a little bit of that 
perspective in a drawer for times when it might be necessary. Jerry Garcia doesn't have a ton of vocal range, at least that I can hear on this album. I don't know his whole career. It's pretty much this. Okay. But a yarn like this is entirely within his wheelhouse. He There's no macho posturing, which again, I think would have been an easy trap to fall into. He just conveys the pathos and humanity of someone who's on the run. I really love it. He has a real sweetness to his voice that I like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And that mean that stayed through most of the Dead's career. Mike, what's your take? Well, this might be the Grateful Dead song that gets stuck in my head the most. It, it, <laughs> it might it might be Casey Jones, but Friend of the Devil is close. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just so much fun, and Jerry Garcia sounds like he's having a great time, even though he's being chased by hound dogs and the devil just took his twenty dollars. It's it's simple, <laughs> it's catchy, it's direct, and it's all the things people hate the Grateful Dead for not being. So you've really got no <laughs> excuse here. This isn't like a weird jam or anything. This is just a great song. Yeah. And when I say it's simple, I don't mean it's simple because there's all kinds of interesting instrumental counterpoint going on through this whole song. There's that mandolin part you mentioned. There's a Bob Weir's guitar part that he calls the devil's hornpipe. And uh, there's Phil Lesh's bass part that never stays in one place for very long because no Phil Lesh bass part ever does. And the bass sounds really cool in this, too. It's got a neat little wooden sound to it. Oh, Phil Lesh is just a wonderful bass player. In my opinion, one of the most underrated bass players in rock. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I I never hear him talked about, but at the same time, I was impressed with him on every song on this album. He treats the bass like a lead instrument. He's never just providing backup. He's always an active musician. Yeah, and it's it's never like self-indulgent lead bass. It's busy, but it always fits the song. Yeah, he's not yeah. Les Claypool. Yeah. He's just an amazingly <laughs> talented guy that, I mean, deadheads talk about him, but I'd never see him show up in like bass player lists of the best bass players ever, which right. is a shame because he's really good. Yeah, and we share a birthday. So. Oh, oh. There's nice. that. <laughs> <laughs> so this song underwent a lot of changes live. Originally, it got a pretty faithful reproduction, but by the time the band hit the late 70s, the band had changed the arrangement of this, and their arrangement of it kind of gets to the heart why I don't like late period Grateful Dead quite so much. They kind of turns it into a slow reggae-inspired dirge, which doesn't Dude. quite work. Yeah, it's not good. It sounds like he'd be very easy to catch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not going to outrun the sheriff with that speed. <laughs> so yeah, this isn't one of the Grateful Dead songs that were improved by jamming on it in live performance. It was always considerably better as a fast-paced bluegrass number than as a 12-minute long non-stop <laughs> reggae number that just went on forever. I've heard a bunch of versions of it from this era, and... 
they're not even close to as good as the original studio version. I, which is the kind of a thing I have about late period dead, like from the late 70s onward. They really lost a lot of their energy due to a combination of aging and drug addiction. And I really liked them a lot more when they were a bit snappier. It's not like this later version is bad, but it's not even close to as good as the original. And they were really they they had gotten really into reggae around that time. But they had they had slow reggae songs that were really good, like Ro Jimmy. Ro Jimmy was a lot better. Yeah, they, they didn't need to mess with Friend of the Devil. All right, we're going to move on to track three, Sugar Magnolia. Sugar Magnolia, blossom is blooming, that's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river, She'd have to come up soon for air Sweet Blossom, come on Under the willow We can have high times if you look back We can discover the wonders of nature Rolling in the rushes down by the riverside Sugar Magnolia is one of the band's most famous songs At least where I grew up this, along with Casey Jones from Working Man's Dead, Friends of the Devil, and Truckin' were the Grateful Dead songs that were constantly played on the classic rock radio station where I grew up. So this is the first song on this album composed and sung by Bob Weir, the group's second guitar player slash songwriter. A lot of people kind of write Bob Weir off as second rate, just because he's not nearly as famous as Jerry Garcia in popular culture which I think is a mistake. He wrote tons of great songs for the band and was every bit as important to the band's sound as Garcia was. I think a lot of that really comes down to he just didn't have nearly as an iconic a look as Jerry Garcia did. Yeah, that's that's hard to do. <laughs> Bob Weir just kind of looks like a guy. Yeah. Where Jerry Garcia looks like Jerry Garcia. <laughs> and there might not be a catchy uh, flavor of ice cream to name after him. <laughs> but Bob Weir wrote just as much stuff for the band as Jerry Garcia did, which I feel probably has to bother Bob Weir, right? Because people always think of, like, ah, Jerry Garcia, but Bob Weir wrote half the band's material. Mm-hmm. He's the Jerry yeah. Casale of uh, the Grateful Dead. Who's that? From yeah, Devo. Devo. Oh, yeah, I know Mark Mother's Bob, but that's yeah. there was another guy? <laughs> exactly. That's how people okay. think of the Grateful Dead. They're like, oh, it's Jerry Garcia, but Bob Weir wrote, like, fully half of their songs. Mm. Yeah. And sang them, too. But he just, outside of, you know, big Grateful Dead fans, Bob Weir just doesn't get the recognition, which is unfortunate because he wrote a lot of great stuff. So when I was preparing for this episode, I had actually written notes ahead of like re-listening to this about how, yeah, this song's pretty good, but I don't love it. But I think that's just kind of the Grateful Dead hipster in me trying to be like, ah, well, I mean, everybody knows Sugar Magnolia. It's Hmm. not that great a song. Have you heard these other great songs? I had to kind of like I re-listened to it. I had to kind of fight my urge to do that. It's like, ah, this is a great song. It's a really great song. There's great guitar coloring throughout it. The harmonies are great. 
the lyrics are not my favorite because <laughs> the relationship described here sounds at least modestly abusive. Because <laughs> his ideal woman will like drive him home when he's super drunk. And then when he gets tickets, she'll pay them. <laughs> it's like, uh, I think you could do better, girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> You don't need to pay Bob Weir speeding tickets and constantly <laughs> like deal with his drunk driving issues. But I, I like though that I like that it takes the wheel when I'm seeing double. Like like she doesn't drive. She just like grabs just the leans wheel. over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, can you take the wheel for a second? I'm seeing double. <laughs> so not one of my favorite Robert Hunter lyrics, but this is still a very fun song. So for the Grateful Dead. Their reputation is generally that their live material is better than their studio material. By and large, that's true. But American Beauty is an album where the studio construction is so great that the live material generally doesn't hold up to the studio material. There's only a couple of exceptions on this album, and Sugar Magnolia is one of them. Sugar Magnolia was generally a lot better live. Because at the end, where the song kind of fades out, when they played it live, it would just keep going. And the live versions of this I've heard have universally been fantastic. This is a good example of a song that really took flight when performed in concert. Sunshine Daydream there this the studio version of sugar magnolia is it's a fun happy little song but it's one that really became a great song when they did it live live versions of this song are just these explosions of exuberance particularly at the end like phil mentioned uh where you only get a little bit of it here before it fades out when they did it live it was almost like a separate song and they would usually play it pretty late in the show usually near the end of the second set after they'd finished all the epic jamming they were going to do. They've done all their drums and their space. Yeah. And to hear them burst into this song after they've done something long and weird like Dark Star or the other one, it's just such a feeling of release. And people dismiss Grateful Dead shows as a lot of just interminable stoned hippie noodling. But they really knew what they were doing and they had a real understanding of uh, of tension and release. They had a very strong idea of what structure was. If they played something yeah. atonal that went on for 10 minutes, they knew to play something like Sugar Magnolia to release it. Right. And it, it always worked. But then on the other hand, the studio version has a pedal steel guitar in it. So. This is a heavenly song. I mean, I seem to be kind of on the opposite side of you guys for several of these. And that may be the case here, too, because this is my favorite Grateful Dead song and one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, it's got a beautiful melody. It's sung sensitively. That's not to say the lyrics are sensitive, but it's sung sensitively. Um, it's sunny and happy, and it makes me happy, or at least as, as close as I can approximate in that direction. I'm not usually a fan of the Dead's skittering, weightless rhythm section, at least as it shows up on this album. 
Um, I'm amazed that it takes two drummers to produce such an anemic beat. Uh, I pointed this out in another episode that that that's what holds back a lot of Todd Rundgren's music for me, too, that the lack of a steady beat that centers everything and moves it along. You don't need to be ACDC, but you could shoot for somewhere in the middle. And a lot of the time that kind of hamstrings the Grateful Dead for me. I will say that the two drummers sound generally worked a lot better live than in the studio. Because in the studio, it just, it never quite works. But live, when the two of them were both on fire, they could really pull something out. I believe it. And all that said, it works wonderfully here on this song. It complements the song perfectly. And I love, there's this little drum roll towards the end that I just always love. Jerry Garcia's loping pedal steel break is, is just so perfect. I used it as my phone's ringtone for a long time because it's just peaceful and beautiful to hear, even out of context. I've since removed it from my phone because I no longer like receiving phone calls from people and I don't want to ruin the association I have with the song. Do people still have ringtones in 2019? Yeah, also because no one has ringtones. <laughs> um, I'll echo Phil about the lyrics. Uh, while Sugar Magnolia sounds like a, a great accessory for the narrator's life, the lyrics do not describe a healthy relationship. And I hope that Sugar drops this condescending, insulting, traffic law disregarding drunkard and pursues her own happiness. And eventually, if she wants, finds someone who can meet her halfway effort-wise. So lyrics aside, though, I love this song. Yeah, that's all I got. I love it. Yeah, it's funny regarding the lyrics. I was actually just rewatching uh, the, the Decline of Western Civilization Part Two, and they had pretty like, a different segment. from any, the Grateful Dead. Well, <laughs> but there's a segment where they're all talking about, yeah, these girls they make me dinner and da 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 da. da. So I guess maybe it hasn't changed that much from the hippies to the hair metal guys. <laughs> the patriarchy never changes, Dan. <laughs> But I guess I'm more in line with Phil on this one. I, <laughs> I, I never really give much thought to this song, but when it's on, I enjoy it. I mean, it sounds like a nice sunny day. Uh, so I like it, but it's kind of a lighter one for me. Uh, you know, it's good, but... I, it, I, I really feel like I'd like this song more if it weren't for the fact that I grew up listening to classic rock radio and this got played so much. And now it's just kind of become background noise to me. Like, I recognize it's a great song, but... As usual, Classic Rock Radio has ruined it. We never got <laughs> down our Classic Rock station. That's interesting. So we're going to move on to the next track, Operator. And uh, if our DJ plays Jim Croce, I'm walking out. I was going to have him play Midnight Star. Did they have one too? Operator. Is that a funk band? This is an emergency. Operator. Baby, don't hang up on me. Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. My right or left up on the midnight flyer, singing like a summer breeze. I'm really interested in learning about Pigpen here. He's just, he's mm. so intriguing. So this is basically the one and only song on this album where you can even detect the presence of Pigpen. One could make the argument that Pigpen, a.k.a. Rod McKernan, was the original leader of the band. His style was a huge influence on the earliest years of the band. 
and his renditions of Turn On Your Love Light at concerts would routinely eat up 20, 30, or even 40 minutes worth of time. By this point, however, Pigpen was kind of on the way out. The band's style had changed drastically over the years. Pigpen was kind of an R&B and blues guy, and they switched from that to psychedelia, and then they switched from that to more country and folk. And Pigpen just kind of seemed like the odd man out, and he never really fit in. He was also, unfortunately, a hard-drinking alcoholic, which led to his premature death at age 27 from a gastrointestinal hemorrhage in 1973. By that point, he had already quit the band because his health was so bad because of his alcoholism. But it's hard to overstate how important he was to the band in the early years, even though they eventually didn't need him anymore. Essentially, he was the Brian Jones of the group. He formed a lot of their earliest sound. The band moved on. He died young. So this song, it's extremely slight, obviously, but it's fun. Pigpen's got a really distinctive voice, and the lyrics on this are a lot of fun. He's calling the operator, trying to get his old ex-girlfriend, trying to check out her number, trying to run down her line. The operator says that's privileged information, and it ain't no business of mine. So, a pretty minor song, but lots of fun. Yeah, as much as I like the gorgeous harmonizing on the other tracks, I like how this one is different uh, from the others. It's, it's more direct. It doesn't have much of a hook, but it's got energy and personality. It conveys kind of this dour mood that really comes across. The guy The guy just sounds like he's not going to win, but there, there's something endearing about that. From what little I know of Pigpen and from what you've described, I, I like him. I like the idea of the guy who, while he ended up out of sync with the band, he was still their friend and they stayed loyal to him. It's touching to think about, and it's very different from how the Rolling Stones treated Brian Jones. Then again, Pigpen doesn't seem like he was nearly as much of an abusive dick as Brian Jones. So maybe it's hard. Maybe I shouldn't judge Mick and Keith there. Everybody uh, loved Pigpen. Okay, so he's a very different person. Um, I'm not sure that I'd want a whole album of Pigpen songs like this, but as it stands on this album, it, it's refreshing. But if you go back to Live Dead which I mentioned earlier, side three is basically all Pigpen. It's just 25 minutes of Pigpen being Pigpen. <laughs> so if you I have to check it out now. So if you want to hear him being himself extendedly, then that's what you need to check out. Dan, what's your take on this? Yeah, I've always liked this one. It is definitely a minor song, but it's really, really fun. And I think that I prefer this dose of Pigpen more than... 15 minutes of him hustling the audience uh, and talking about pocket pool. <laughs> yeah, his lyric, his live lyrics could be a little gross, <laughs> but but this is fun. And I, I think I like this better than was it easy wind. He sings on. Um, yeah, it's easy wind on uh, working man's dead that he does. This is kind of an unusual song for Pigpen. He was really like like Phil mentioned, he was really the R&B blues guy in the band. And I uh, I mostly associate him with songs like their version of Turn On Your Love Light, which would have these long passages of Pigpen just sort of freestyle rapping. Uh, so to hear him doing this very uh, succinct sort of folk rock song is a little out of the ordinary, but I, I do like it. Uh, it's a fun little song. And for all you uh, production nerds out there, uh, if you listen real close in the right speaker, 
you can hear some of Pigpen's original vocal bleeding into the instrument mics because mm-hmm. he sang it live while they were recording the backing track. I, I can't cool. imagine Pigpen is gonna was gonna you know go back and intricately record vocal overdubs. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't really sound like his style. Yeah, well, I mean, he, the 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 final vocal is overdubbed, but he he you can hear the like the live vocal he sang while they were recording it, just like bleeding into the like guitar and drum mics. So in terms of live performance, this one basically never got played live. The band played it four times, according to setlist.fm. With Pigpen's declining role in the band, and the fact that there's not really a lot you could do with this song aside from just play it, it got dropped from their setlist pretty quickly. And after Pigpen died in 73, they never tried to revive it without him. All right, we're going to move on to the next track, Candyman. And if our DJ wants to play Sammy Davis Jr., that'd be awesome. But if not, that's okay, too. How about some Space Hog? (laughs) Come on, pretty women, with your hair a-hanging down. song that's generally pretty overlooked but i think it's pretty great it's got an awesome vocal delivery from jerry garcia some wonderful chord changes and a dark atmosphere that really keeps this song interesting for its entire six minutes there's also an absolutely wonderful pedal steel guitar solo from garcia in the middle of the song that i can never get enough of it could go on for a lot longer than it does and i would never get sick of it It kind of feels like something from Jerry Garcia's 1972 solo album, just titled Garcia. It feels a lot like something that would be on that album, which is a compliment because that's a great album. So this it kind of feels like it's one of the lesser songs on the album because it's surrounded by a bunch of really killer material. So if you tend to overlook this song, as a lot of people do and as I once did, Try ripping it out of the context of the album and just listening to it as its own song, where I think it'll stand out a lot more than what's surrounded by all these great songs on this album. Yeah, Candyman is the song on American Beauty that has grown on me the most. It's it's six minutes long and it's very slow. So you might hear the first 30 seconds or so and think boring and skip to the next track. <laughs> Don't do that. You have to give this one time to really develop. Uh, And my favorite part of this song, and maybe my favorite part of the whole album, is Jerry Garcia's pedal steel guitar solo in the middle. 
Yeah. It's it's run through a Leslie speaker, and there's a bunch of reverb on it, and the effect is just celestial. Like, for the duration of that solo, you are floating in space. Jerry Garcia had only started playing the pedal steel guitar that year. And that's not wow. an easy that's not an easy instrument to learn. Like I don't know how many of you have listened to our uh, Robert Plant and Allison Krauss episode where I explain how a pedal steel guitar works, but you have to use your hands, your feet, and your knees to play it. But uh, <laughs> but, but Jerry plays it like it's no big deal. Also, I, I want to mention the uh, the words to the second verse of this song, just because I think they're just great. It goes, I come in from Memphis where I learned to talk the jive. When I get back to Memphis, be one less man alive. Good morning, Mr. Benson. I see you're doing well. If I had me a shotgun, I'd blow you straight to hell. That's a great <laughs> lyric. Yeah. And Jerry Garcia <laughs> sings it in like the same super friendly voice that he uses to sing everything. And it's just great. Uh, it's, it's so unexpectedly violent and i love that (laughs) (laughs) what says dan read Candyman. i always kind of like this song and revisiting it uh because i hadn't listened to album in a long time until i was preparing for this and revisiting it like it's a highlight for me like it is such an interesting dark song and it kind of has a bit of a lonesome town feel to me Hmm. But I have to echo that steel guitar solo was probably the best moment on the album. It is just such a haunting, cool <laughs> piece of music that it is it is great. This is sort of where the album begins to lose me. I, I like how much you all like it. Um, but to me, it seems like they're running out of ideas. But the record label Fat Cats are still demanding a full album. So they had to sit around and strum something up. It's inoffensive, and as always, the harmonies are great uh, across the entire album. And as everyone else has pointed out, Jerry Garcia's pedal steel solo is the work of a master. It, it's watery. It's Yeah, it's great. Um, but other than that, I don't feel any purpose or need here. Uh, Phil talked about the Dead's harmonizing as a grittier, more authentic take on what Crosby, Stills, and Nash were doing at the time. And I can definitely hear that. Uh, it's less smoothed out. But songwriting-wise, to me at least, CSN blew the dead out of the water. One Stephen Stills can make a big difference. One Graham Nash can as well. Um, And the flip side of that is that to me, there's no musical idea in Candyman that's going to dazzle anybody. And there's no lyrical story that really needed telling. It just kind of passes the time nicely. I I feel like this is not going to make anybody a fan of the dead. But if you are already a fan of the Dead and you like their sound, you'll like this. I feel like the Grateful Dead were uh, they were a band that didn't really set out to dazzle anybody. They were, you know, they were doing this more or less for themselves. And if any if anybody heard it and liked it, then that was that's great for them. Um, that's probably part of why you know they were always kind of a cult band because they didn't really. 
it wasn't until like Touch of Grey that they had like the the big pop breakthrough because they weren't really trying for it. Oh, yeah, they weren't even really trying for it when Touch of Grey happened. That was a right. total Yeah, fluke. that just that just happened. Yeah. They'd been playing Touch of Grey live for like seven years before it came out. Was that their only top 40 hit? Yep. That because I remember I used to have the, the Joel Whitburn, you know, chart book where it lists every song that was ever in the top 40. And I remember, you know, there's a, there's a big piece on the Grateful Dead and all their their lineup changes. And then you look down and they just have the one song mm-hmm. that was yeah. ever in the top 40. It wasn't a conscious attempt to hit the charts. It was they'd been playing it live for years and years and years. And they finally decided, let's go to the studio and cut it. It's a great radio song. Yeah. So let's go on to the next track, Ripple. I knew it. Thanks, Rich. What's this? It's a Genesis song. Oh. (laughs) that, That was actually Ripples by Genesis. Here's the real one. If my words did glow with the gold of sunshine and my tunes were played on the hall of strong would you hear my voice come through the music would you hold it near as it were your own it's a hand-me-down Ripple is perhaps the single most timeless song that Jerry Garcia ever wrote. It doesn't sound like it came out of this era at all. It sounds like an ancient folk song that's been around forever, which kind of makes me wonder where this came from. Jerry Garcia was writing a bunch of crazy hippie nonsense just a couple of years before but now he was spitting out music as ageless as this, which is astonishing. So while the melody here is extremely impressive, the song probably wouldn't be nearly as amazing without Robert Hunter's lyrics. Robert Hunter was a considerably better lyricist than Garcia, and bringing him on board was definitely one of the best decisions the band ever made. His lyrics elevate much of the band's already excellent material into the stratosphere. I don't know if there's ever been a non-musician member of a band who's contributed to a band's sound more than Hunter did. I don't know if I can think of a better opening lyric to any song than Hunter's opening lyrics to this song. If my words did glow with the gold of sunshine, and my tunes were played on the harp unstrung... Would you hear my voice come through the music? Would you hold it near as if it were your own? That's gorgeous stuff. And the coda of this song ditches the lyrics entirely and just repeats the melody wordlessly with piles of earthy but beautiful vocal harmonies. It's a perfect close to one of my favorite songs of all time. If I knew the way I would take you Oh, 
in terms of a non-musician who's contributed a lot to a band's sound, I'd also mention Anthony Kiedis of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, but that's mostly uh, <laughs> that's, that's mostly a cautionary tale. I dig Phil Lesh speaking up on bass on this song, uh, on an otherwise quiet arrangement that might have kept another bassist hushed up, like just wanting to play quietly like everybody else. But I, I like that he speaks up. Um, David Grisman's mandolin sweetening is always welcome uh, here and on. What was the other song that had it? Sugar Magnolia? Friend of the Devil. Friend of the Devil. Well, it was great there, too. As for the song Ripple, it's it's endearingly gentle, but it's also kind of barely there. Um, I like songs that are simple. I like minimalist, kind of like Friend of the Devil. But everybody except for Lesh seems afraid to be making any statement about anything. They're all just kind of whispering to each other, like like they're afraid of ruining this section of the vinyl by tracing any grooves into it. Dan, what's your take? You know what? I'm kind of in between. Like, I, I like this song a lot, but it's never been quite to me what it is to other people, I don't think. But I think it speaks to the power of television that any memory I've had of this song has been entirely eclipsed by its use for the final scene of Freaks and Geeks. Yes, I've thought of that too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And this entire album kind of plays a pivotal plot point in the uh, the final episode. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I like it. It's really pretty. But to me, it doesn't quite move me as much as I think it does other people. What really strikes me about Ripple is how old it sounds, but also not. Like, it doesn't sound <laughs> like it could have been written by a bunch of hippies in San Francisco in 1970. But it's also too mystical and zen to be an actual old American folk song from up in the mountains somewhere. So it's it's a conundrum, a koan, if you will. I, I think people <laughs> often forget that the Grateful Dead started out as a jug band before they were anything else. And this song is a good reminder that they had that mountain music in them right from the beginning. And it's also just a lovely song. Well, Phil, can you tell us about Ripple Live? They would occasionally play it, and it always basically sounded like the record. There's not much about this one. So they pulled it off. In that case, let's move on to Broke Down Palace. Going to leave this broke down palace On my hands and my knees I will In my time, in my time, I will roll, roll, roll. In a bed, in a bed, by the waterside, I will lay my head. Listen to the river sing sweet songs to my, my soul. Broke Down Palace is apparently a regular feature at the memorial services for various deadheads, and it's easy to see why. It, much like Ripple, is a gorgeous song that feels like it's existed forever, with lyrics that, despite not having a concrete meaning, are very evocative, with lyrics such as, The river gonna take me, Sing me sweet and sleepy, sing me sweet and sleepy all the way back home. 
and going home, going home, by the waterside I will rest my bones, listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul. Lots of water imagery that seemingly represents the flow of life. See also Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. <laughs> so this song flows directly out of Ripple. They connect entirely through the music, and the two songs seem to be of a piece. Robert Hunter apparently wrote the lyrics to this, Ripple, and To Lay Me Down from Jerry Garcia's excellent debut solo LP on the same day. And I think it's fair to say that there's never been a greater hot streak of lyrics from a composer as that one. So I think it's basically exactly as good as Ripple, a gorgeous song that seems to be both sad and joyous at the same time, which I don't know how the band managed to pull that off because it's an incredible feat. If there's a better one-two punch of songs on any album than Ripple into Broke Down Palace, I've never heard it. Mike, what's your take on Broke Down Palace? Well, I, I like Broke Down Palace. I don't have a whole lot to say about it musically, so I'm just going to talk about what I like about Robert Hunter's lyrics in general. They're always really evocative, like Phil said, and they're, they're full of interesting imagery, but they're always just vague enough that you have to fill in some of the blanks yourself. I've seen a lot of interpretations of Broke Down Palace saying that it's about someone who's accepting that they're about to die. But it never actually mentions anything like like that specifically in the lyrics. That's all that's all you putting that together in your mind. And Robert Hunter likes to leave that last piece of the puzzle for you to add yourself. And I think that's neat. There's also long been a rumor that this song was written about Jerry Garcia's mother's death. Oh, which Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. It's hard to tell, but that would make sense. Yeah. This is one that, when I was a kid, went right past me. It just didn't register at all. And revisiting as an adult, it's probably the the sleeper uh, <laughs> hit for me because it just it it's it really is just a gorgeous moving song. If I can be just a slight pain in the ass, though, uh, the doo 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 doos at the end, I find a little dopey. <laughs> um, <laughs> but otherwise, it's it's a really beautiful song. I love the song title. Uh, I remember on one of our Nuggets minisodes, uh, we did the song Tobacco Road, and I said that it just conjured up the image of this awful, awful street, the worst place you could possibly grow up. I can picture Broke Down Palace being on Tobacco Road. Uh, it's just a place you don't want to end up in life. As for the song, I mean, it's nice. There's not a ton going on. I, I wish so much that they'd pick up the pace. I have a bias against overly slow music because I think it's often a sign that there just aren't many ideas going on. I don't mind when music is soft or sad or dreamy, but when it's glacial, it just loses me. Uh, it's hard to find fault with their genial sing-along vibe, and the harmonies, as always, are great, but it's so slow, and uh, only the pretty chorus is even remotely distinct. Uh, as a song, it's barely there. I guess, like, I'll talk about this a little bit later on uh, Addicts of My Life, but songs like this really kind of have a gospel sound to them that... I guess growing up in the kind of area I did, like it really does kind of evoke like the gospel music I heard a lot growing up. And it connects with me because I like it a lot better than a lot of that music. I think it's 
it generally registers as a more emotionally resonant version of that. Did they play Broke Down Palace live very often? They played it pretty regularly, but they never really extended it or anything. It was generally used as an encore. The lyrics such as, Fare you well, fare you well, I love you more than words can tell, combined with its very pretty nice melody kind of made it a good send-off for shows so it was usually just a straightforward encore all right well let's go on to the next song till the morning comes Pretty much the dictionary definition of filler. The song's pleasant enough, but it never really sticks with me. The harmonies are nice, the melody is okay, but overall, I've got very little to say about this one. I can't imagine it's anybody's favorite song on this album. It's just kind of, it's nice and it's there. Yeah, as far as songs called Till the Morning comes on popular folk rock albums from 1970 go... This is definitely better than the one by Neil Young. And a big part of that is that the Neil Young one is so slight that it's barely even a song. But Bob Weir has said that this song was one that hadn't really, in his words, grown a face by the time they recorded it. And they got tired of it pretty quickly. Uh, but it's not a bad song at all. It's, uh, it's just the weakest song on a very good album. I really like how high up in the mix Phil Lesh's bass is. You know, it's not his yeah. like, busiest playing or anything, but it's it's nice to hear him, you know, dominating things. To piggyback on Phil's rating system from the Def Leppard episode, which I loved, this is not as good, in my opinion, as the Neil Young song of the same name, which is a beautiful song. And while it's small, it fits in perfectly with the aesthetic of After the Gold Rush, which is a great album. Uh, it's also not as good as the Holland Oates song of the same name, um, which I think came a few years later. But it is good. Uh, the beginning of the song has an actual riff, uh, a distinct and perhaps even memorable musical idea that they state. There's a memorable chorus and even an outro melody that's different from what came before. Uh, so I'm impressed with all of that. And the harmonies, as I've said about every song, they're beautiful. Um, after the last three songs, it's nice to have a little energy in the guitar strumming, a little oomph in the music. Uh, to me, it makes all the difference. Even on the tracks that I haven't liked on the album, there have been so many elements of an enjoyable song. They've got musicianship, they've got the harmonies, uh, they've got evocative lyrics, uh, but something was missing for me. But here, they've got all the elements of an enjoyable song, even if it's small and not one of their classics, it, it checks the boxes for me. Yeah, usually when the Grateful Dead try to get down rock, the results aren't my favorite. They kind of just want to sound sort of brittle to me. But I actually do like this. Uh, it is definitely minor, but it is fun. And like you said, it's it's a good kind of change of energy to have at this last stretch of the record. So I like it. 
Phil, did they play Till the Morning Comes in concert? They did, but not much. Much like Operator, they never it never made it out of 1970 for live performance. It's pretty clear the band regarded this as a minor nothing of a song. So some of the later Garcia-less incarnations of the band, like The Dead, when they toured as just The Dead with No Grateful, they played it a couple times, but I think they just did it because they thought, ah, that's one we haven't played in a while, let's pull that one out. But uh, generally speaking, it's pretty clear that the band never really cared about this one or saw much potential in it. So, yeah, it's a filler track. All right, let's go on to Addicts of My Life. In the Addicts of My song full of taste no tongue can know Lesh is never playing exactly what I expect him to play and, and I always like it it's always just like one little beat off from where I would expect the bass to go and it's always interesting is one of my favorite songs of all time by anybody. Probably my favorite Grateful Dead song. The Dead never wrote a song this beautiful either before or since. It's essentially structured like a hymn. Slow vocals with countryish harmonies over a very simple melody line. But in my opinion, any complication would hurt the song. It just has a tremendous melody, and the arrangement keeps all the focus right where it belongs. It's nearly six minutes long, and I wouldn't change a note of it. It routinely brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it. I know there's a lot of people who think this song is boring. I've seen many people who cite this as a low point on this album, but people who really like this song really like this song. And I'm one of them. It connects with me on a primal level. Blame my southern upbringing. <laughs> so the lyrics are great, but somewhat ambiguous without any kind of concrete meaning. According to an article on Dead.net, when Robert Hunter was asked about the meaning of the song, he answered, I guess I have to give the stock answer. If I could say it in prose, I wouldn't need to write the song. <laughs> Poetry is evocative. It's meant to communicate to deeper levels and approach the levels of a nonverbal experience. And I think that's fair here. It really manages to feel deep and meaningful without any kind of concrete meaning. And I don't know, this song just really gets to me. I understand if it doesn't get to you because it's very specific in how it feels. But to me, this is the greatest Grateful Dead song of all time. 
Dan, what do you make of it? You know, it's one that, that again, it's another one that kind of passed me by in previous listens. And even now, like, I recognize that it's pretty and it has nice melodies, but I still haven't quite gotten my hands around it. It's a little too shapeless for me. So I don't know. Like, I, I, I like it, but it's not, it doesn't quite move me the way that it does, Phil. I don't guess. Well, this is the other song on here that's grown on me the most, right behind Candyman. I always used to think this song just dragged. <laughs> and yes, it is very slow, but those harmonies are just wonderful. Uh, Phil compared it to a hymn, and I'm going to go one step further. This is a chorale. A golden one? <laughs> yes. Yes, that, that one. <laughs> Does that mean that Jeff Foxworthy appears on this? <laughs> He's way in the back, yeah. But the the Grateful Dead, as as we've discussed, were, weren't a band with a real innate ability to harmonize, and they had to put a, a lot of effort into working out the harmonies for songs like this. But when they did, this is what they were able to put together. And if you're a little bit older and a little bit slower than than the teenage version of yourself, you might uh, this might start to open up for you. I like that because I've had that experience with a lot of music like Frank Sinatra or what I would call Olive Garden kind of music. <laughs> I, I, I had no patience for it as a teenager, but it just it just kind of fits me more now. As always, I respect how much Phil loves this song. I mean, that just comes across so clearly. And I think that's great. I just kind of hear sludge. Um, maybe this is just the band's deal and I have to take it or leave it instead of questioning it on every song. Uh, but on the other hand, their best songs, the ones you hear on the radio, aren't like this. Uh, they, they have some life to them. I can't deny, as always, that the harmonies are beautiful and they carry a lot of the weight of the song more than they should have to. Um, if the melody were more distinctive, if the arrangement had anything to it, if it wasn't more than five minutes long. But again, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. Maybe at least much of the time, this is the wrong band for what I'm looking for, as talented as they clearly are and as occasionally vital as they can sound and as they will on the next song, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. Uh, but Phil, can you tell us about Addicts of My Life in concert? Well, I'll tell you this much. This is not really a sound you have to accept from the band because it's a really one of a kind song from them. They never really did anything else that sounds like this. And when they played it live, it just didn't quite work because, like Mike mentioned, this band really had to work for harmonies. They worked very hard in the studio to make it sound like this. They could not pull them off live. Which is why, uh, after they played it a few times, they actually retired it in 1972 and didn't play it again until 1989 when they played it as the encore at a show where they billed themselves as formerly the Warlocks because they were trying to secretly sell tickets to people who knew the band's history instead of, you know, the Johnny-come-latelys who had gotten into the band. And they played this as kind of a treat for them. And eventually, by 1991, it showed up as a pretty regular feature of their shows. But by 1991... The band was very much a shell of their former selves. And when the band played it live, it wasn't because the audience was expecting a smoking live version of this. It's more because they liked this song a lot and they knew it hadn't been played very much over the years. 
So they were happy to be hearing Addicts of My Life, but live versions of it, I've heard a few and just they're never anywhere close to as good as the studio version. This is kind of peak The Grateful Dead in the studio versus The Grateful Dead live. All right, let's move on to the last track on the album, Trucking. <laughs> Most of the cats that you meet on the streets speak of true love Most of the time they're sitting and crying at home One of these days they know they gotta get going Out of the door and down to the street all alone Chugging like a doodah man Once told me you got to pay your hand Sometimes the cards ain't worth a dime If you don't lay them down strange trip it's been indeed this song is basically the grateful dead's calling card a rare co-write between phil lesh bob weir and jerry garcia and a staple of the band's live act for essentially their entire career it was in their top 10 most performed songs at their shows so the structure of this one's pretty basic it's a simple shuffle that alternates between a harmonized chorus and that a kind of rap-like bit sung by Bob Weir. The song itself is loads of fun. It's probably not my favorite song on the album, because I really like kind of the quieter, folkier songs on this album, which really connect to me, whereas this one feels a little bit more just like a bit of fun. But it's still a good song, and I definitely get why a lot of people really love it. Mike, what do you think? Well, I, I agree that this song generally got better live, mostly because there was usually a really hot jam at the end of it. But uh, mm. Bob Weir also had a tendency to forget at least a few of the words whenever they played it. And he wrote the song. <laughs> he always forgot the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And apparently the original idea for the song was that they would keep adding verses to it forever and it would never be finished. But that that just never happened. It was... Bob Weir described it as pretty much uh, autobiographical. Like if everything in this song is more or less something that happened to them or something they saw happen. And it's just, it, they're just writing it down. It's That's their life on the road. The, the studio version of Truckin' is still a, a really likable song. It, it really does feel like you're, you're driving a big truck through all the weird little parts of America that nobody ever bothers to write songs about. On their Europe 72 tour, Bob Weir would always introduced this song by announcing that it was number one, numero uno, in Turlock, California. <laughs> and I, I think the bridge in particular is one of the best bits of music they ever wrote. I don't think what a long, strange trip it's been would be such a part of the popular lexicon if it didn't have that music swelling up behind it with those harmonies that they didn't always pull off live but sound perfect here. I do wish, however, that Somebody would explain to me what a doodah man is. Or maybe it's better <laughs> if I don't know. 
I, I just think of like a joke they would make on Mystery Science Theater 3000. They would say, sometimes say like, then I trucked like the doodah man, <laughs> which they would reference just because it was such obvious nonsense. <laughs> this is a hell of a song. Um, it seems like it was beamed in from another harder rockin' album. The drums still don't thump like I wish they would, but they skitter with purpose, and that's good enough. Um, Jerry Garcia's harsh guitar solos, uh, where he's just commenting on the music around him, are so good, and I wish he'd go that route more often, at least on this album. Again, I don't know what he does the rest of their career. Uh, he could have sat in with a blues band and been right at home, at least musically, they probably wouldn't have been his speed and, and he was happy right where he was, but he had he had the talent for it. And as Mike described really well, the, the two harmonized choruses or bridges are just magical. Uh, they interrupt what is almost a, a slightly monotonous melody of the verses at just the right moments, you know, when it's kind of plodding along and you get to the point where you've had enough of it and then they just burst into these harmonies. And yeah, the bit about what a long, strange trip it's been has probably netted the band millions of dollars in merch sales. So that was pretty inspired. Trucking is a great metaphor. And with each year the band persisted, it became more and more appropriate. It's still on the radio 50 years later, and it absolutely deserves to be. Dan, what do you think? Well, you know, for a song that's basically become the Grateful Dead theme song, you expect it to be kind of tiresome and stale, but it really is that good. Like, it really is just a great encapsulation and kind of a travelogue of their, including their being busted, <laughs> being documented in song. It really is just that good of a song, and it still holds up. I do remain perplexed by the line about Sweet Jane being on Red's vitamin C and cocaine. I don't get the vitamin C part of that. Anybody? Perhaps just that's the part that's a shame. <laughs> well, it it brings to mind uh, how uh, you know when when David Bowie was recording Station to Station, he was he was living on cocaine, peppers, and milk <laughs> exclusively. So, it might be that kind of a thing. Perhaps after getting tired of driving that train while high on cocaine, they decided to add vitamin C because of vitamin deficiencies. I don't know. Scurvy. Don't I don't know much scurvy. about drug culture. <laughs> <laughs> The band also had a Hey, Hey, We're the Grateful Dead, but that never really caught on. And I don't believe they ever played it live. So don't look for tapes of it. Phil, uh, tell us about live trucking. Well, live trucking. Well, if you thought the band was a little bit too timid sounding in the studio, there's a lot of great live versions of trucking. The songs on this album I tend to like the most are kind of the pretty harmonized ones like Addicts of My Life, Ripple, Broke Down Palace. Those never really got live workouts because they couldn't. But stuff like Truckin', which I feel is a little bit weaker in the studio compared to those songs, they really got crazy long extended live versions. There's the Europe 72 album that came out immediately after this contains a sidelong version of Truckin', which technically it says it's, you know, Truckin' slash epilogue, but you, whatever, it's all Truckin'. <laughs> I'm a going home. Whoa, whoa, baby, back where I belong. Back home, sit down and patch my bones and get back trucking.
so the band would really extend this and jam out on that coda because on the album the coda just kind of fades out like right as soon as they say keep on trucking on and then they don't keep trucking on because the album's (laughs) over but in concert they would keep on trucking on for like 15 more minutes pretty regularly and if you're like me and you just really like hearing a good band play then those live versions of trucking are killer one of the reasons I'm not super crazy about the studio version of Truckin' is because it kind of feels out of place after Ripple and Broke Down Palace and Addicts of My Life. It feels like it flew in from a different planet and I'm not quite ready for it. But in concert, when it would come up and just be a 20 minute jam, I love it. So some of my eh, it's all right, it's not one of their best songs really just comes from album placement, but live yeah, it was great. Yeah, it should have been a standalone single or something. It I'll never complain when it comes up on this album because it's one of my favorites, but it doesn't belong with the rest of the music on the album. All of Side 2 is just this really quiet, meditative music. And then just, here's Truckin'. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, Truckin'. It's kind of like where some of these just sort of like signposts for a later concert staple. Like just establishing, this is a song we're going to play live. Yeah, right. It's going to be 20 minutes long. Get ready for it. It's like, keep yeah. on trucking on. And then it just kind of fades out like it's an invitation. Keep on trucking on with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so let's truck on. Uh, Phil, what conclusions can you draw about this album? It's certainly the Grateful Dead's crowning studio achievement. They're a band that, as I've mentioned many times, and as I'm sure anyone will tell you, they've, they've built up their reputation as a live band. And as a person, I've heard all of their studio albums. Generally speaking, their live stuff is better than their studio stuff. But this is the album where they really put things together and put together a studio album that just works. Where many of the songs here, because of all the intricate harmonies and all the different stuff they had going on, they just couldn't recreate live. So while generally I would recommend people you know, listen to some of the more beloved Grateful Dead live recordings. If you're going to go for the Grateful Dead in the studio, this is just singular. This is the one you absolutely need to hear. Yeah, as somebody who came into the band from the decidedly song-oriented compilation, this still is kind of the sweet spot for me. I guess it's really kind of an outlier, maybe, in terms of what they represent overall. But it really is just a collection of just really delicately crafted songs with an effort in the studio that I don't know if they really continued beyond this. I'm still not quite as familiar with their later albums, but uh, no, their next studio album was a clear step down. Which one was that? Wake of the flood. Oh yeah. I never got into that one. Yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think this is to this to date, probably my favorite studio album by far. Although I guess Working Man Dead is not far behind, but yeah, those are the two. It's the overnight sensation slash apostrophe. A very good, Dead. very there good you metaphor. Go. Yeah, <laughs> that's very on brand. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> As with every album where I, I disagree in places with the host, I think it's awesome that Phil loves this music so much and he's done a great job proselytizing for it. And it's not just Phil. Millions of people have loved this album for 50 years, and that's worth taking really seriously. 
and I even genuinely love a few of the songs on here and always have. Um, when this talented band records a song that they actually seemed excited to write, and when they put some energy into it, it is magical, even so many decades later. And when those songs come on the radio, I'm never like, oh God, it's the Grateful Dead. Wait, why am I wasting time saying that out loud? Change it, change it. No, I am genuinely excited to hear Sugar Magnolia and Truckin' and Friend of the Devil anytime they come on. But beyond those songs, American Beauty can get kind of dreary, kind of slow, and to me, kind of devoid of interesting ideas. It's pretty, and it's obvious that the, the players know what they're doing, but I just can't get excited about a lot of the album. It's impossible to hate, but it's also often kind of hard to pay attention to. I really think this album, especially the second half, how much you like this album depends on how much you just like straight gospel music. Because there's so much gospel influence on Ripple and Broke Down Palace and Addicts of My Life, which Addicts of My Life is basically just a straight gospel song in the kind of Protestant Baptist, you know, hymnal sort of way that you really kind of have to be on that wavelength, I think, to like it at all. Which I totally understand if you're not. I guess just with my upbringing, these are the kind of songs that really do connect with me. Mike, what do you think of the album overall? American Beauty is really an album that took some time to grow on me because it's it's an album of just songs rather than uh, these extended excuses to take off straight into outer space. But uh, they were never really able to pull off the, the psychedelic mind expanding thing in the studio. Not even close. Yeah. On, on, you know, Anthem of the Sun and Oxamoxoa, they, they had this tendency to get in their own way a lot and they had trouble knowing where to stop. It's like, hey, it's a recording studio. We can do this and we can do this. And they just ended up obscuring whatever music was there with just, you know, outrageous ideas. Let's let's take like five different live versions and play them at the same time. <laughs> Which the result is that, yeah, on Anthem of the Sun, everything on Anthem of the Sun is just if you just listen to an unscrewed with like live version from the same era, they're all better. Yeah. But on uh, American Beauty and also Working Men's Dead, uh, they'd finally figured out how to let the songs just exist without needing to obscure them with a lot of psychedelic space dust. So if you want to hear the Grateful Dead as purveyors of well-crafted songs, this is really the place to go. And Phil, if people love American Beauty, where should they go from here? If you love American Beauty, everybody will tell you, oh, you should check out its sister album, you know, Working Man's Dead from the previous year. And I will say that those people are correct. Like, if everybody considers Working Man's Dead and American Beauty to be kind of two sides of the same coin, they're not exactly the same. Working Man's Dead is a lot rougher and folkier, whereas American Beauty is a little bit more focused on the vocal harmonies and much more professional sounding. But they are very similar albums, generally speaking. And I can't imagine that anybody would like one and hate the other. So if you like this, definitely get Working Man's Dead. You'll like that one, too. Beyond that, for Studio Dead albums, uh, their studio output is really spotty. I would say their best studio album is the 
much disliked by deadheads, but I kind of think it's just because it was popular. 1987 album In the Dark, which is a very good album. It contains Touch of Grey, which was their biggest hit, and it was their biggest hit for a reason. It was incredibly good. There's also lots of great songs on there. Black Muddy River is one of Jerry Garcia's all-time best songs. Throwing Stones by Bob Weir is one of his best songs. Definitely check that album out. But if you want to dig into the band's deeply intimidating body of life work, it's really hard to even know where to start. If you're just trying to dip your toe in, I would suggest... Just ignore all of their various archival releases with titles like The Closing of Winterland or Egypt 78 or whatever. Stuff that's clearly, you know, a much later. Here's a complete concert, blah, blah, blah stuff. I would recommend checking out the contemporaneously released Europe 72 as a gateway into the band's live output. It's a triple disc, so three vinyls, it's two CDs, so you still get plenty but it gives you a ton of songs in the vein of American Beauty, a couple of sidelong jams, like the entire third disc. Side five is all trucking and side six is all morning dew. So you get plenty of indoctrination into their long jams. And you get to hear them take like Oxo Moxoa's China Cat Sunflower and play a version of it that just absolutely tramples the original into the dust because the band knew how to play it now. Europe 72, I would suggest get Live Dead because that's my favorite Grateful Dead album. And it's much more experimental and weird, but it's really good. 
And if you like that one, after you get Europe 72, if you like if you like American Beauty, Working Man's Dead, Europe 72 and Live Dead, you're probably going to be a hardcore fan of The Grateful Dead. And there's going to be tons of resources online to help you find more shows that'll suit your tastes. I will post things in the show notes for this episode that give a little bit more of a guide to this episode. So check that out on discordpod.com and hopefully you can find something that suits your tastes. So happy hunting. And that's how you pass the acid test. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to fill the production notes with dicks picks. So uh, just don't, (laughs) don't open it up at work. Right. I will definitely, I will flood your (laughs) inbox with unsolicited dicks picks. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, what would you recommend? Well, uh, I know Phil just, said, you know, don't bother with all the uh, archival live stuff just yet. But there is an archival live album from the same tour as uh, Europe 72. It's called Hundred Year Hall. Ooh, that's very good. I I actually prefer that to Europe 72 just because of, I mean, it's like two thirds of a single show. And just the energy level on the whole thing is really great. It's It doesn't have a lot of overlap with Europe 72. So, like, if you get them both, there's not going to be a lot of redundancies. I think it's a little bit less accessible because you do have, like, 35 minutes of that's it for the other one on there. Yeah, but it's incredible. (laughs) It is really good, though. (laughs) If you can make it through 35 minutes of the other one, it's like, yeah, yeah, you've you've passed some kind of test. (laughs) If you can make it through the other side of that one. It's the Grateful Dead, when they did these jams like that, they could actually be kind of frightening. Like they do this thing called the Tiger Jam. They would do it in Dark Star. They do it in this version of the other one. It's it's really it's kind of a terrifying thing that they all come together and do. And then they, they come out of it and they do, you know, Sugar Magnolia. <laughs> yeah, that that's the thing. Like this band, like they have a reputation for being peace and love, man, hippies. But they could really make some intimidating music that would stand up against stuff by, you know, bands like Can. Yeah. And they don't get enough credit for that. They really don't. Yeah, they they went to they went to some dark places sometimes. Well, they were friends of the Hell's Angels. So, <laughs> Dan, what would you recommend? I'm gonna stay in the studio because it's safe in there, and <laughs> say I'm a really big fan of that first Jerry Garcia solo album that Phil mentioned earlier. It is a really interesting album. In fact, even if you're not a fan of the Grateful Dead, I'd say check it out because it just really he does some really interesting things on it. Oh, I, I can't believe I forgot to mention that album like as a recommendation. Yeah, you're right. That's superb. Please get that. outside the box i would actually if you like this sort of country tinged hippie music with a dead connection i would recommend the first new riders of the purple sage album 
it's definitely a lighter listen, but it's a lot of fun. I uh, listened to it on the exercise bike today, and it was delightful. I am not going to be useful here. Uh, I don't know any Grateful Dead music that everyone doesn't already know. Uh, Uncle John's Band, anybody? Uh, Touch of Grey, anybody? Casey Jones, great song. Uh, so I'll just say go with Phil. Phil is not going to steer you wrong. Ben recommends From Elvis in Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> That brings us to the end of American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. On our next episode, which is our 40th episode, Mike is celebrating by putting on Pink Floyd's 1971 album Metal and syncing it up with whatever movie Metal syncs up with. Cough, Fantasia, cough. Well, thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream American Beauty and other albums by the Grateful Dead at your local Borders Books and Music. God, that makes me sad. I miss Borders. <laughs> or the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. And we've made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. There's also a truly incredible collection of live recordings by the Grateful Dead available at archive.org if you want to go down that particular rabbit hole. Follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at DiscordPod for news and updates. Check out my book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie, song by song, on Amazon.com. Editing for the episode is by Rich Bennell, and special thanks as always to Mike DeFabio for his production skills. You can check out his music at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com. See you next album and be ever wonderful. To keep the music out of their eyes.